Welcome to episode seven of Sperm Donation World. I'm your host, Adam Hooper. Scotland, it's famous for its Scotch whiskey, inventing the game of golf, and not to mention bagpipes and kits as worn by the Simpsons character Willie. Throw in a James Bond character of the likes of Sean Connery and an Obi-Wan Kenobi and Ewan McGregor, there's no surprises. We have a special donor from here today. So from Glasgow, we'd like to introduce uh, Anthony Fletcher. How are you today? Yeah, I'm not bad, Adam. How are you? Oh, I'm great, thanks. So look, it's interesting. You, uh, you run a big group in the UK. You're from Scotland and you started in 2013. Where, how did it all start for you? Yeah, I think about um, maybe late 2012, actually, I, uh, I was reading articles. I just stumbled across a couple of articles in, in the UK press about, uh, about donation. And it was something that hadn't really occurred to me before that it was possible to do it that way. I suppose I had uh, considered donating in a clinic when I was much younger, but uh, that was the first time it had really occurred to me that... Uh, you could do it in this informal way, in this much easier way, actually. And uh, so it should have occurred to me because you can do anything on the internet. But uh, that was the first time the thought had entered my head. And then I just, I just, uh, so I, I explored it a little bit and just put up an ad to see if there was any interest, just, just out of curiosity. And actually, there was a lot of interest. So um, about, you know, at the start of 2013, I, uh, I started donating. And was it was this via Facebook? Was that the platform that you found? No, there were actually in those articles I read. There were a couple of uh, forums mentioned, non Facebook forums. Uh, there was there was a famous uh, forum back in back in those days in the UK called Tadpole, which was extremely active. Um, it was so it was much. I, I thought it was much superior to Facebook because it was much more anonymity. It was much more freedom. I thought and. So when that site was running, things were a lot easier, but then it shut down very suddenly. And uh, so I think that kind of forced everybody onto Facebook and then things got a bit chaotic after that. It's a bit interesting that you said this, Tapple. I mean, I'm not really, I've heard of it. I'm not really too familiar with it. Uh, how did it shut down? What, what was behind that? Did, was there any reason? Or- no, I don't think anybody really found out what happened. Um, either the owner just shut it down or maybe he couldn't afford the he or she couldn't afford the fee anymore or possibly it was taken down, but we don't really know what happened. It just, it just suddenly disappeared. The groups in on Facebook is quite high numbers compared to the United States or Australia. I mean, obviously there's a bigger population than Australia. You know, you do have a lot of people coming through those doors in the UK market. Have you noticed significant growth in the Facebook groups from 2013 to up until 2019 where we're currently at? Um, well, yeah, I didn't really join the Facebook groups until 2015 because that was after Tadpole shut down. But certainly there's been enormous growth since then. I think um, the, well, of course, a lot of the groups have shut down recently because Facebook had a purge. But before that, there had been there had been huge growth. And I think that was because the groups are run by quite obsessive people and they're quite competitive about um about getting the most members and they probably promote the groups quite heavily. So I think that's, that's the only explanation I can think of as to why uh, the uh, Facebook donation scene in the UK is so much uh, 
so much more active than the donation scene in other countries like the, the US and Australia. It seems interesting because the you know the clinics are pretty much in a, a public war with you and the media's in a public war with you. Yet there's so many people flocking this way. I mean, they try and say these women are desperate and, and all these derogatory comments, which I'd find quite offended, uh, offended as a woman uh, joining these groups to be told that I'm desperate. So I don't think that's probably the best way of them going about it. I do read articles over in the UK that do say that the clinics are really struggling to find donors and only a small handful join within, you know, like a, a lengthy period. Is there a war against the clinics and are they losing it? Because it seems like the people are voting with their feet and the significant numbers joining these groups that prefer this option and we get, keep get hearing about the media trying to say, oh, it's such a dangerous way and blah, 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 but it's not stopping these people coming in droves. Well, I don't think there's any war against the clinics as far as, as, far as we are concerned. I think it's more like the, the clinics have, have a war against us because we threaten them. I think that's how it works because, uh, I mean, we certainly don't do anything to try and dissuade people from using clinics. I've had one or two people that have, I've considered using me and then I've ended up going to the clinic and it's not like I've uh, tried desperately to say to them that that's a bad thing to do. But, uh, you know, in practice, clinics are extremely expensive and uh, a lot of people are priced out of that and it's just not an option for them. And so basically what the clinics are saying is if it's too dangerous for you, basically they're saying you shouldn't have children, which is not a realistic, uh, not a realistic response as far as most people are concerned. No, it seems like they're, they're fighting a losing battle trying to start a, you know, a smear campaign against something that isn't working and it, it might be better for them to focus their ideologies and change their views on looking at other ways to try and promote people coming through their doors rather than try and just take low blows, which is clearly not working. Do you have any personal theories on what the clinics can do to you know, make themselves more lucrative, appealing to people or... Is, is that something you just prefer to stay out of? Well, I suppose they're, they're charging so much that they must be making huge amounts of money no matter the mass of the numbers. Um, I think probably the legal framework is, is the biggest issue. So the, so the UK government could, uh, could change things by, by uh, changing the laws on donor anonymity, for example, or by... There, there are various things that could be done, but certainly it's extremely, extremely daunting both on both the donor side and the recipient side. Obviously, the recipient has to pay a huge amount of money, and most donors that put themselves forward are rejected, of course, because uh, the sperm doesn't just have to be good sperm, it has to freeze well. So the vast majority of donors that put themselves forward are rejected. So there's a lot of uh, disincentives on both sides. Mm. It doesn't sound very appealing to you know go through the process and then find out your sperm doesn't freeze well just to be rejected. So, you know, and I'm pretty against freezing sperm as it is because you can't beat fresh sperm. So, it does highlight that when you do freeze sperm, that it does affect it, and some people can't even defore, which you know they haven't got technology or systems in place as of yet to uh, you know utilize sperm or have a defrosting system that can can extract it in a way that works. So it does sound like technology is lacking. Anthony Fletcher, it's a pseudonym, um, obviously for privacy reasons. Correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're a single man in your, in your late 30s, approaching 40? That's correct, yeah. You've had no desire to have your own kids. 
how would you describe yourself, Anthony, in terms of how you've been in life? You've, you've lived a single life and, you, and you've dedicated a lot of your life into helping families. How has this came the road, the road for you and, and obviously your comfort levels in how you live your day-to-day life? Well, I think uh, I've known for a long time that I don't want children of my own because simply because I, I think having children is like a 24-7 occupation and there's no respite from it. You can't just sort of take a break when you feel like it. So I think um, I quite value my quiet time and so I, I couldn't ever picture myself having children of my own. So I suppose from that point of view, it made sense to help people in this other way. I think that's a very commendable outlook on things because, I mean, there's people out there that they realistically know that they may not think they're up to being parent themselves, but they do realise that there are people out there that are willing to be parents. You've also stated if you if you were to enter a relationship that you would be honest about your, your history of donating and that you would consider stopping if that's what they wanted or you would stop if that's what your um, future partner suggested yeah i think that would be a reasonable thing to do i don't think that's something you could uh, you could keep secret from a partner i think yeah i think you would have to have that conversation but it's not on the agenda at the moment so i don't really know what would happen in that situation so ha- how do you arrange your donations and, and your prospects of who you help is it pretty much open door like if they're ready to come to you you're happy just to do an exchange or is is there a screening process your end or do you feel comfortable donating just sperm to anyone or is the people that you don't is there any systems that you have in place or is it pretty much if they weren't willing to be a parent that's you know you're happy to help in that way I think a lot of it has to be based on instincts because obviously in an ideal world you would screen people as you put it to find out if they're in a good financial situation and so on and um, stable family life and all the rest of it. But, you know, in practice, people can can tell you things that aren't true. And I know from experience that people do tell you things that aren't true. So I think a lot of it has to go on instincts and just whether this feels like the right sort of person. The one thing I am very careful about now is is age because, uh, you know, about... It must have been about six years ago now. Uh, there was somebody who contacted me who said she was 23. And um, I think she turned out to be 16. Uh, so I'm not sure how I would have verified that without uh, without seeing her passport. But certainly I make, try and make sure as best I can that, uh, that they are sort of a suitable age to be receiving a donation. I've come across a couple of people because I screened my group pretty thoroughly. And... I do read through the comments and stuff like that. And, you know, if I can see someone celebrating a 17th birthday and it's only a couple of months prior, you know, I'll, I'll pick up on that. And it is a um, point because it, um, people, uh, young people do try and come through. And obviously you don't want to be donating to minors. That opens up a whole new can of worms. You know? And the way I say to these women is uh, least wait till you're 18 and then you can make a decision as an adult to do it. I mean, some people even think 18 is too young, but the law in Australia at least says, you know, you're an adult, so I'm not going to discriminate against the law. Uh, personally, um, some people wouldn't want to feel comfortable donating to an 18-year-old. That's fine because it's their choice. But, yeah, at least they can put their hand up once they become an adult to make those decisions where they want to go. Because, I mean, I'd rather endorse them at least trying to go for this route than trying to have a, a one-night stand on Tinder or something like that 
with someone unexpected and the risk of STDs and stuff with a person that's just random and you know not uh, a donor as such. So do you just chat online and have no prior me- meetups before the the donations handed over? Is a lot of the donation just handed over by you know meeting in a vehicle and and, and exchanging, or, or do you go to their house or a hotel? How how does it work up in Glasgow there? Yeah, I, I don't really do. Uh... I don't really do pre-meets because I've, I mean, I've done that before, but I, I generally find that when you meet someone in advance, they're, they're, they're generally the most choosy, selective types of people, and they might be talking to seven or eight, nine donors, and they're just, um, just trying their options, and they will choose the ideal perfect donor, which is fine. I don't begrudge them that in any way, but um, just from my own point of view, this, it becomes too time-consuming if I'm going to meet with people who, you know, there's only a 10% chance I'm going to end up donating to them. So I found from my own perspective that it makes more sense just to go straight ahead and that reduces any risk of just going on a wild goose chase, basically. And certainly people who want to go straight ahead are serious about it. It is an interesting point because some people do want to get to know their donor and their traits, but I mean, I think obviously you've shared a view that why you don't and which for many, it's obviously if you were meeting so many people and only 10% chance of donating to someone, it'd probably wear you down pretty quickly as a donor and the longevity of you being a donor probably would have been you know, ended by now if that was the case. What do you think of time wasters? Do you get many of them over in the UK? Yeah, I'm sure there's time wasters in every, in every country. It's, um, yeah, you just have to, it's just part of it, isn't it? You just have to... Uh, deal with that as best you can and don't don't let it get you down too much. Do you find these time wasters to be rude or just uh, abrupt or tell you that they're going to use you or and have other donors on the go or, and not tell you that you're a backup or something like that? Is that is that how it normally defines a, a time waster? Yeah, I mean, yeah, normally they, uh, they would... I suppose in that situation, they would be quite serious about going ahead and they would sound quite serious about going ahead and then they would just sort of stop messaging and or suddenly block you or something like that. So, yeah, that's fairly common. And, yeah, so that's a, another thing I'd like to touch on because you, you're coming on to a Facebook group, a community, and these men are, are giving their time. Uh, you know, if you're not serious about using them, just be honest, just say, hey, sorry, I'm, I'm not ready yet or oh, I found someone else, thank you very much for your time, you know, so they can move on and focus on helping other people because some, some men only do choose to help one person at a time so they might be holding back on your decision before they speak to someone else. So it's just common courtesy. We need to increase common courtesy in these groups and these forums. You know, obviously when people are offering their services for free, they're not making any particular money from it. Uh, is you know we we don't want these men quitting because of rudeness and people being unappreciative. So keep that in mind if you're if you're a recipient listening to this podcast today and just you know be a bit mind worthy of uh, people's feelings. You don't you know just because you've spoken to a donor doesn't mean you have to use them. But you know don't don't lead them on or lead them astray. Just you know be an open book, and and that's probably the best way. Would you would you agree with that, Anthony? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it's, I don't think there's much point in uh, becoming too judgmental about it because we deal with a lot of people and just people are going to come in and, 
they have to be sort of ruthless from their own point of view, I suppose, and they're just trying to, to make the best of it. But um, yes, yeah, it's, it's infuriating, it's irritating, but there are always going to be people who do this because, you know, I suppose from the recipient's point of view, the owners occasionally are going to let them down, and we know that happens. And so I suppose from their point of view, it does make sense to have a backup donor. It's just, it would just be nice if they would be upfront about that and tell you what their intentions are rather than sort of leading you to think that you are their number one choice and you definitely are going ahead, whereas in fact they're just keeping you there as reserve. Have you had any bad experiences apart from that, you know, obviously that younger lady that was 16, 17? Well, yeah, I've certainly had, um, for example, I, I donated to somebody uh, quite a few years ago now who, you know, her partner, I think her partner didn't want to be in the room when I came in because she was uh, very scared of men. And I just realized it was a very kind of, it was not a healthy situation to be in, but the, uh, the recipient was extremely pushy. And I just, I just thought, well, it's going to be hard to get out of this situation now. So I went ahead and then uh, it didn't work, which I think was a relief. And then she was extremely pushy when I wouldn't donate to her again. And she was, being quite rude and offensive and I mean there've actually there have been quite a, there have been a few incidents like that it's just it's just something that happens now and again it's just uh, I think once you've donated somebody once they think you know they have a right to expect future donations and it's quite difficult to uh, to extricate yourself from that situation if it doesn't feel correct but sometimes you just have to yeah there is that sense of entitlement by some people I mean I've seen some women join the group and even some men as donors have some attitudinal problems where they feel like, you know, they've said to me or they've tried to write a post up saying I had four donors cancel on me right now. So was there any serious donors out there? And really when that is happening, you've sort of got to say, well, what am I doing wrong? Because, uh, and when they, and when they write stuff on the, on these forums, the donors also are reading that as well going, She's had four guys cancel on us. Obviously, they found out something that makes them feel uncomfortable donating to her, so I'm not going to inquire. So I don't, I'm not sure why people feel the need to air that dirty laundry because it's not doing themselves any favours. But, I mean, if you're having four donors cancel on you, there's probably something that you may need to improve, maybe your manners, just maybe a thank you or a please to it. You know, just the little things um out there uh do you you know do you think do you find that a, a please and a thank you goes a long way when people are speaking to you when you're considering helping them yeah there are there are certainly uh, people who are extremely entitled and it's almost like a job interview and it should be a privilege for you if they select you as their as their donor so there is this slightly odd attitude but i suppose you know when when recipients come into it they maybe don't realize there's a certain scarcity of donors and you know that uh, they have to be realistic about. I think um, a lot of the time when you see these people who say that they can't find somebody or that they've been let down by so many people, it's amazing how often I maybe contact them and they've just sort of not taken it seriously or other donors will say, well, I've been in touch with you and I didn't hear back from you. So uh, I think quite often in that situation it's... uh, it's people who have unrealistic expectations. Not always, of course. There are some recipients who are just unlucky and they really are, have been let down again and again and again. That does happen. There's no point in denying that. But uh, 
sometimes it's a bit of both. I think, you know, as long as you can say that you've done everything right, hand on your heart, and be realistic and have expectations where you can sort of judge for yourself whether or not have been unlucky or whether or not your sense of entitlement might be a little bit too high and the way you're going about things could be adjusted. So covering costs, I mean, you don't charge. We get a, we get a lot of people in the UK Facebook groups. There's always um, people saying, oh, it's illegal to charge for sperm and all this and that without providing any legistra- registration or any links that say this. I've seen an interview with Simon Watson go head-to-head with the clinics on, on, a, on a media presentation over there where they acknowledge that it's not illegal to sell their sperm perhaps over there uh you know what's the situation for you when it comes to covering costs and your views on people making these statements about not being able to charge for sperm in the uk or you know all all that sort of you know jargon yeah i think uh, some of the groups in the uk are run by well some of the former groups some of them have been shut down now are run by quite militant people that have quite militant views about uh about Simon Watson and about charging and so on. And what they do is they take the, uh, the information on the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority website, which states that charging for sperm is illegal. But the point they're missing is that that only applies in a clinical setting. And it's been confirmed by the HFEA that outside a clinical setting, it's not illegal. So what Simon Watson's doing is, is perfectly legal, whether it's advisable, whether it's ethical is another question, but he's certainly not breaking the law and it's, it's so frustrating that we have to continually correct this, people stating it as if it's an absolute fact, an absolute proven fact that it's illegal when in fact the opposite is true. And this has come up again and again because the, there are these admins and people in influential positions who are just stating this as a fact, it's very difficult to get that message across and we just have to keep correcting it. I thought that why it's an interesting point I brought up here today. You know, obviously, this podcast will can be referred to the UK audience and they can listen to this and hopefully get a grasp of it. Just from my own point of view, I don't charge because I, you know, I think when I started out, I uh, obviously read up about uh, what it can be like for donor-conceived children. And one point that was made again and again was that it can be quite traumatic if they find out that... Uh, money changed hands and that was part of the process that led to their conception. So I think from that point of view, I, I wouldn't want to charge and I'd never want to charge. Although obviously sometimes you're traveling and then you'd have to look at the reimbursement of travel expenses, which I think is an entirely different issue. So you've, you've obviously got friends and family. You use a pseudonym to keep yourself private. What's your long-term view once these children get older? I mean, you did say, you did just mention that, you know, you, you're thinking about their psychology. Are you open to being a part of their life if they come and reach out to you in the future? Or where, where, what's the long-term vision that you foresee in, in this situation? Um, I think I would just play it by ear. I think, I think I have to make myself available to them if they want to know a bit about me. And then I would just sort of take it from there, whether I would want to be part of their lives in any significant way. I think I would have to wait and see how I feel at the time and how they feel, obviously. But I think, yeah, I certainly would have to make myself available if they would, uh, if they wanted to know anything. I think from what I've read, maybe some would, some wouldn't. So it will just be, um, it'll just be a case of seeing what they want. So you've got 23 born and I think you've got one on the way currently. <clears throat> Do you say that, that you'd have a few more out there that 
you haven't been notified about? Yeah, I think that's fairly likely. Um, I mean, it could go either way, of course, because there's also the issue that you could think you have a donor child and actually the, the recipient use more than one donor without telling you in that cycle. So that's the other thing that can happen. But yeah, I'm sure there must be there must be a few out there that I don't know about because people obviously disappear unexpectedly and then you just don't know what happens. For example, um, way, way back when I started, I donated to somebody once and I know she got pregnant in that cycle uh, because I saw it on her Facebook page, many Facebook profile many months later. Um, but she also mentioned something about the child's father and uh, the, uh, the child meeting the father for weekends and so on. So I, I would guess that maybe she had a boyfriend at the time without telling me. So I will never know whether, whether that child is uh, biologically mine or not. So that, those sort of things happen. And that's that sort of thing has happened maybe three or four times and other people have disappeared or given quite vague responses when I've asked them what happens and so who knows. What's your views on genetic testing and being on a database as a, as a donor? Is, is that something appeal to you or doesn't appeal to you? Or um, No, it doesn't appeal to me. Uh, occasionally people ask for quite detailed genetic testing, genetic background, and I just... I think just from the complexity of it, I think I think that's just beyond what I would want to do. So I've always said no in that situation. I mean, the majority of recipients aren't aren't concerned about that. They just want basic health checks. And and obviously, you're comfortable with your um, family medical history. That you know, you don't feel that's an issue. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you run um, a group, a Facebook group, Babies and IVF UK Free Speech Group. Uh, what does the free speech mean? Like it's emphasised in the title there. So, you know, if you join that group, what does this free speech allow people to do? Well, we had a lot of problems before I set up that group. There was there was one dominant group which was run by somebody who is uh, slightly unhinged and uh, was is you know, a sort of a dictatorial figure and was just it was just impossible to operate i mean she had a, a small number of uh, favorites a small number of golden boys who could do no wrong and everybody else was kind of portrayed as monsters and were shut down and she banned people extremely easily so really the free speech aspect of my group was intended as a kind of contrast to that that obviously can't be completely free speech because there are facebook rules there are community standards that have to be adhered to and um Facebook have been cracking down more recently anyway, so um, it's free speech within certain parameters, but it's just it was meant to be an indication that it was going to be a I mean, more I, free environment than the, than the other group. I mean, I used to read some comments, and not necessarily from your group, but, I mean, it was people coming on saying, I think a person should have a mother and a father or single people shouldn't breed or people with two mums deserves a dad. It's, you know, it's a abuse blah, blah blah and for me it just seemed like well your point is pointless because all you're trying to do is stir people up it's not contributing to sperm donation or people getting pregnant are those comments that you condone in your group or frown upon um well i would probably allow those groups uh, those points to be made because that's obviously part of free speech but um yeah i don't agree with those points of view but uh yeah if, if you're going to allow it an open forum, then I think you have to allow people to say those things if they want to within, within reason, you know, with it becoming offensive, and that's a different matter, but they can certainly express their views. I think, I think one th- the thing I had difficulty with, for example, was 
there's a, a well-known donor in Scotland, actually, one, one of the other well-known donors in Scotland who, um, who was portraying NI donors as perverts. And that, that sort of, to me, that seemed to cross the line a bit because it was becoming quite abusive and he was making the point that he wasn't abusing, any, abusing anyone in particular. But, you know, so there were those kind of borderline cases where, you know, does free speech apply in that case or is that just abuse? So, but in general, I would allow people to express their views. Because, mm, I mean, I, I, I'm don't, not sure if I totally agree with that because, I mean, I do see that some people just join the group to online troll rather than be a donor or be a recipient. And I just personally believe if you're in, in a sperm donor group, you sh- you know, you've got to be either supportive or uh, donating or, or looking to use a donor. So it is an interesting angle that you did, but it's a unique angle and you do advertise it in your the title that is a free speech group. So, you know, every group's run differently and people know that they have the right for free speech in that group. So it's uh, definitely... Uh, a different angle from a group that I run, but, you know, not to say it's wrong or right. So, yeah, it's interesting that. Um, so, as you said, there's uh, other groups out there. There's uh, uh, a men that think that some men are um, golden boys and uh, that you said. Uh, is there a, a donor rivalry issue in the UK? Uh maybe sabotage or people trying to talk themselves up or talk people down, as you said, with that guy saying NI perverts, you know, how is there a problem there in, in this issue that, you know, would like to, you know, be a bit more people to be a bit more mature about? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There, there are a lot of uh, big personalities and um, yeah, there's a lot of donors who try and just uh, put other donors down to, uh, to make themselves sound like the best option. For example, there's a guy who, um, who tries to portray anybody over the age of 35 or he keeps changing exactly what age he is. You know, it's too dangerous to use a donor over the age of 35 because he's, of course, 30. So he's the perfect age and he's the ideal age. And, you know, anybody else is inferior to me. And, um, yeah, there are, for example, there's a, a donor in the northeast of England who uh, who runs two websites and he uses that, uses those websites to garner personal information from people. He's not upfront about his ownership of those sites. And so people are joining, perhaps giving personal information, and he, he uses that perhaps to maybe give mild threats, you know, nothing specific, but, you know, kind of I know where you live kind of threats. And he's been known, for example, um, another donor who lived quite close to him advertised on one of his sites as a Yorkshire donor, and the uh, the owner of the site changed that to Brazil, and uh, so just just general trying to sabotage anybody on his territory. And um, he's I, reasonably well known that he has he has hundreds of children, and he's just trying to uh, crowd out the competition, basically. Mm. And it is interesting how people are motivated in different ways, as, as such. Uh, you know, obviously, it is a small fishbowl, the UK. A lot of fish in, in the bowl, but uh, essentially you, you, you're really close to each other, so it can be an issue. Whereas in other parts of the world, we do have a lot of land mass that separates a lot of people. Where yeah, I haven't really noticed this rivalry in other places as much as I do in the UK. But it does make sense with the you know how condensed everyone is within that area. Uh, it's it's sad though that you know because I like to think as donors and like speaking to your date to you today that we are all a team trying to offer a a service that attracts good people 
to come in and, and feel that they can use that. So we'll just we'll keep pushing towards uh, making the community a better place and all and, you know, we'll get our stories across and it'll be great. So you've done a bit of media. You've done a few stories over the years. Uh, I came across one by the Mirror, 15th of December 2016. They stated back then you had 14 children. How would you sum up that article and did they get it right? Did they add a bit of mayo on it? You know, to, you know how, how do you feel from the articles? I mean, generally a lot of these articles in the UK, they do take a few digs at you. So we'll, we'll go for each one and we'll clear up, clear them up and get the real story on some of these points that they made that may not be fully true or very limited in what you said. Well, yeah, I get, um, um, since I started the group, um, and it obviously became quite a large group and it's the largest in the world at the moment, um, so I, I do get journalists periodically, maybe once every two or three months, who are who want to speak to them on the phone. And sometimes it's not entirely clear uh, what their intentions are, whether they're planning to publish it or whether they're just looking for background information. So, for example, with that with that article in the Mirror, that was probably the um, maybe the fifth or sixth time that I talked to somebody down the phone, but it was the first time that anything had been published, and uh, so it was quite a was quite quite a shock to my system in a way when I saw it. I wouldn't say that was uh, the outcome of that article was too bad. It was what they do is they tend to sort of pick out the sensationalist details and leave out the more mundane parts and sort of take things slightly out of context. So I, I would say that article was gave a slightly misleading impression, but I can't say that I was I was seriously misrepresented. Most of the things that were said is maybe not word for word accurate. Of what, I, of what I said, but uh, it was close enough that I couldn't have too many complaints. It's more just more just the parts that were left out and it just gives a slightly misleading impression. But, you know, obviously I've had much worse experiences than that. It was stated in that article that you had 14 children and that you planned on retiring after two more kids. Was that just where you were at at your donor stage, where, you, where your mind was at, where you thought, well, can't see myself doing it too long at the moment or, you know, had some negative experience that maybe you thought that, you know that you weren't going to continue much longer because obviously 2019 you're still you're still here you've you've overcome those thoughts was there a mind frame back then that you thought maybe you weren't going to do it for too much longer yeah i'm trying to think back almost i can't actually remember what sort of uh, frame of mind i was in at the time i think i've had a few sort of low points where i thought this can't go on much longer because there are so many negative aspects to it that you just think, right, this is this has got to stop. I just can't keep doing this. I've had a good run, so I, I might I might stop soon. So I've had a few times when I thought that. So I must have been going through one of those phases at the time. I can't actually clearly remember why I was saying that at the time, but yeah, I'm sure I'm sure at the time that must have been what I was thinking. And so you've done another one, uh, the 16th of April, 2018, the Sun. 22 children born at that stage. Uh, can you sum up that article and your thoughts about that one? Yeah, well, this, that, was the, that was the big problem, that one, because that was not an interview for The Sun. That was, that was an interview for uh, a freelance journalist contacted me and he told me that uh, he was researching an article for an overseas health publication and it sounded like quite a not a particularly uh, sensationalist thing. It was just he just was looking for sort of background information for what I thought would be quite a sort of dull, earnest sort of article. I, I wasn't even sure if it would appear in the UK. 
Um, so that was kind of in March 2018. And then uh, one night I got, a, I got a message from one of my uh, former recipients who said, have you seen this article in the, the Daily Mail about you? And it was, it was just portraying me as somebody who had broken the law and who was incredibly dangerous. And um, so I then, you know, I was, I mean, obviously that's not true. I, I haven't broken the law. It was a misinterpretation of the law. This, this journalist had, uh, had, uh, had used the interview in a way that he hadn't given me any indication that he was going to. It was just, it was obviously a kind of a very cynical underhand operation with pack of lies in the article itself. So I, uh, I complained to the Daily Mail. I got no response. I then took it up with the um, with EPSO, which is the uh, the press regulator in the UK, and so they agreed to start a formal process. And I got into a sort of they then refer you back to the uh, publication. So I had about two and fro with the the mail, who were actually surprisingly reasonable, and they didn't. I don't think they wanted to get into a protracted process, so they they deleted the inaccurate information and put in a quote for me that set the record straight. But in the meantime, I then found out that there were other articles also based on the interview in March with, uh, that appeared in the Daily Record, in the, the Mirror, and the one you mentioned in The Sun, and also a website called Glasgow Live. So there were several articles all based on the same interview. And it eventually became clear that the original one was in the Daily Record, uh, which is you know a Scottish paper. And it had been on the front page even. I, had, I was oblivious to that until about three days later. So I had to sort of hurriedly uh, put in several more complaints to episode about all these other articles all based on the same interview. And um, so I, I got into a discussion with The Sun and they, uh, they restructured the article a bit. They took out my name. They uh, took out the uh, references to illegality. And, so, and they put in a correction at the bottom. But uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the Daily Record, probably because they had initiated the article, and the Mirror and Glasgow Live, who were all part of the same stable, they refused to budge. And so, so I got into a very long process. It took several months to uh, and eventually the, uh, the press regulator found against him and forced the Daily Record to run a front-page apology. It's a lot of time that you've put in there that would have been really exhausting for you, but it's, you're standing up for you know, your rights and even as the whole donor community, you've, you've represented them in a way that is saying, hey, we're, we're not willing to put up with false information anymore. And do you feel that, you know, all this hard work that you did going through these avenues and and obviously those several months that you spent, do you feel that it may make inroads in the future on what they may choose to think twice about publishing? Well, hopefully. Um, I mean, episode of the regulator are notorious for not... Um, upholding many complaints and um, so it was, I was not optimistic at all, uh, you know, I was, I was sort of going through the motions but I really expected the, the complaint to be rejected on some sort of technical ground so I was quite surprised when they, uh, when they issued, uh, when they forced the Daily Record to make a front page apology that's quite rare so I presume that um, other publications will have noticed that and will realise that they are certainly a line they can overstep but nevertheless you know, this is such a the media do seem to love the, the issue of sperm donation and they love sensationalizing it. And even um, 
even a matter of weeks after the episode ruling was made, I, there was another article about a, a donor in the north of England who I know, and it was it was branding him as a black market donor, which was one of the things that was said about me. So they, you know, it's not deterring him that much, but uh, hopefully it will remind them that there is a line they can't cross, even if they are going to push the luck a little bit. I mean, I can't comment about uh, the UK, but in Australia, there's been no one that's ever contracted an STD. Everyone's been, you know, obviously pretty considerate in their way that they operate, that we've been fortunate enough not to have an STD. Uh, look, they, you keep seeing in these articles they try to throw in that's dangerous and you get STDs, but, I mean, I've never, you know, they, they as you said, they love talking about sperm donation and, and they're highlighting it. They never have a story where a lady comes out and say, hey, I contracted HIV from using an online sperm donor. You know, there's never, there's never a real story like that. There's always, it's always speculation without, a, without any substance behind it. Would you say that's correct? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like holding this whole area to such a ridiculously high standard because, you know, People use online dating, and that's there are risks attached to that. And you know, you don't because there are theoretical risks attached to online dating. You don't tell people not to do that. You tell them to be careful when they use the, these sites. And it's the same principle. It's not that you shouldn't do it. It's just that you should be be careful. But it's like because it's even at a zero point one percent risk of something happening, you shouldn't even think about it. It's an incredibly high standard they hold themselves to. Which is absurd because, of course, if you look at the records of clinics, there are instances even there you know, with all these tests they do, with all the uh, precautions they take. There are we know there have been cases with clinics where they have ended up giving sperm to women and they've passed on a genetic illness. So you know, if you're going to look at the most extreme example of something can go wrong, things can go wrong in clinics. So it's you know, six of one and half a dozen of the other, and it's just, it's just a ridiculously high standard that they're trying to hold us to, and we know why they're doing it. It's for commercial reasons. Do you feel that there's, you know, obviously clinics in their pocket paying a bit of sponsorship or paying for paid articles to come out and uh, express that um, that angle? Well, yeah, I mean, that, the, the incident I told you about earlier with the, uh, the article in the Daily Records, um, I found out that the... Uh, what well, the freelance journalist who I talked to was working at the time for a for a press agency called the Marco Richards Press Agency. And when I looked into that agency a bit more, it turned out really they were a public relations outfit and they do, basically what they do is they take on paid clients who uh, want, want positive coverage in the, in the media. And so they, they basically write the story themselves. So it's not, it's not like a press release, they're actually pre-preparing a story for publication and they pass it on to editors and um, it's run without any sort of indication that it's actually a glorified press release. And the article that I, that uh, smeared me, basically the only other people that were mentioned in it was this uh, Czech fertility clinic called IVF Cube and its director was a woman called Dr. Hanna Visnova. And she was portrayed in the saintly light for, you know, for how godly works. And she was talking about the terrible dangers of uh, unregulated sperm donation. And so, I mean, it seemed obvious to me, although I obviously can't prove this, that, uh, that she was the paying client, that she paid the, well, her, her clinic was the paying client and they paid uh, the Marco Richard agency to, uh, 
to get positive coverage in the press. And the way they decided to do it was by smearing me and sort of putting the contrast, oh, here's this terrible risk of an unread, unlicensed sperm donor is causing all this terrible harm. But in contrast, oh, you could go to the Czech Republic, you could pay thousands of pounds and uh, you could be perfectly safe and it'll be all be lovely. So that, that's basically the game they were playing, I presume. Yeah, look, it's, uh, we do live in a world where people are in people's pockets and media obviously are a tool that uh, is used to um, obviously bring in, especially for freelancing as well. They'll say, hey, I'm happy to do this and then put my story up on here and stuff like that. So, yeah, so the clinics are in um, a lot of people's pockets so they can do these smear campaigns. I mean, you look at Tinder, online dating, it's, it's way more... Uh, dangerous and potential risk um, out there than there is with online sperm donation. But at the same time, there's not a, another competitor paying the media to say, hey, don't use Tinder so because it's dangerous. Use this, there's, no, you know, there's no other alternatives that can come out and say, use this dating agency because we test the people that want to date for STDs and stuff. So there's no real above higher ground for Tinder. But So there's no one really to approach and say, hey, don't use Tinder because it's dangerous, it's wrong. But on the other hand, when you've got clinics and paid multi-million dollar organisations, you know, influencing, you know, journalists to form that angle and opinion in forms of, uh, you know, paying the their lifestyle and their job that they do, you can see why such uh, great articles of fear is spread across in, in this form of you know, environment that we, we, we are in. Yeah, and I think also the weirdness of um, what well, seems weird to outsiders because it's not a, a commonplace thing to, uh, to look for a sperm donor. I think um, that, that appeals to the, to the media and they they sort of lap up this kind of terrible danger angle because just because it's unfamiliar, whereas online dating is a much more familiar thing and everybody realises there are risks and you have to be careful and so people have got a much more realistic attitude to it. This sort of something comes along that they haven't heard of before, they're a bit unfamiliar with and, oh, it's terrible. I suppose that if you go back 20, 30 years, probably there would have been, if you presented people with something like Tinder that they hadn't heard of, it would have been sort of moral panic about that. So I suppose it's just it's just the unfamiliarity of it as much as anything. Well, yeah, people are controlled by fear and the fear of change. You know, people don't like change or accepting change. Not all people can. Uh, so you always have protesters. It's not until it's been done by the pioneers and demonstrated that it's been done successfully and safely that that's when the sheep do start to follow the herd and, um, you know, and then it starts to get normalised. We still have a little bit further to go in this and we do have our obstacles where there's paid clinics out there uh, paying uh, for media articles to sabotage um, this. It's, I think it's only a Band-Aid solution by them. Uh, they, they are fighting the inevitable. You know, you've got 30,000 people in a UK group over there. I, I wouldn't say that's insignificant numbers at, at, by any stretch of the imagination uh, and it's only going to get become more and more popular and just the way that you see that the clinics are struggling to get donors in the UK over there and the donors are preferring to come online and donate. As you said, you feel more comfortable donating online. You guys essentially are the market. You know, they can't compete with that. So by trying to do this scare campaign, they're trying to deter people from doing this way. Uh, I, I, from watching from afar, from the other side of the globe, I say they're, they're, they're losing the battle. 
Yeah, they are. I, I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing they can do because they are they are pricing people out of the market, and so there, there are same-sex couples who have no option. Really, they want children. They have no option but to go down this road. Or you know, there are other possibilities like using a friend. But basically, they're not going to go to a clinic because they just can't afford it. So they have to look for alternatives. And there's no point in the clinics saying you have to come to us when people just can't afford to do that. Well, you know, I think um, essentially there is that affordability option. Uh, but if you look into it deeper, you cannot beat fresh sperm over frozen. You want it fresh over frozen. The only reason you'd use frozen is if you have absolute paranoia or you have a medical issue requires that you have to use a clinic to in order to conceive and have a child. So, there, you know, there is many extra layers in this it doesn't come down to affordability. Uh, I'd like to see eventually, we've seen the standards increase in Australia where uh, professional working women, we even had an embryologist join our group and say she prefers to, she's come on the group to use a donor because she prefers to use fresh sperm over frozen. And I think that's saying quite a lot considering this lady works in this field that you know, this is a source of income that she doesn't feel even comfortable using frozen. I mean, essentially, frozen sperm, it's still a, a long science running lifetime experiment. Uh, the oldest person is only 40 years old from IVF. And we don't know how long these average lifespans will be from these people. You know, we hope there's, we hope nothing untoward and there is no issue, but we still don't know. So if people want to take that risk, that's for me a far bigger risk to run because we just don't know, don't know the answers yet. And, you know, for me, I, if I had to use a donor, I would prefer fresh. A health and the welfare of the child is paramount about above all other insecurities. And, you know, so for me, I think the message is not just about poverty. It's about actually making the best choice, calculated choice for the health and long-term health. Because people say, oh, well, I had my child born through um, IVF and, and he's healthy. Okay, well, he's only one or two years old. Um, a lot of these problems <laughs> don't arise till, you know, um, later years in, in life. So it'd be interesting to see how this unfolds. But, I mean, look, at least by putting it out there and making them aware that there could be a risk, People go, hang on, because I think I think a lot of people think too short term. They go, oh well, I've got a one or two year old. He's healthy. Um, okay, that's great. He's two years old. He's still got the rest of his life to get through. So, um, you know, there's a lot of educational points there and a lot of benefits, other than just being poor or being pricey, that need to come to light. That the clinics, you know, in many ways can't offer a better alternative option in that regard. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is not a subject I'm terribly familiar with. I, you know, I've read that perhaps there is a, an issue with, is it low birth weight? Um, there's an issue with low birth weight with IVF children. And so that potentially is, is associated with uh, the slightly lower life expectancy. And as you say, uh, the oldest child born through IVF is only about 40 or in her early 40s at the moment. Uh, but I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say there are pros and cons either in either direction. Um, you know, if you use a, an informal sperm donor, then uh, 
there are, I suppose, risks in the sense that you're not going to get this kind of exhaustive screening and quarantine that you get if you go to a clinic. But as you know, as you've identified, those the potential health concern in the other direction as well. And so, I, I just, I to me, it's not like one way is vastly superior to the other. It's just that there are pros and cons in both directions, and it's just a grotesque distortion of the media to portray clinics as this sort of golden thing that nobody should should veer away from in any way and um i mean if that was the case why wouldn't people go to clinics even if they were in a relationship or you know it gets to a ridiculous point and also i think a lot of people who choose to uh choose to use a an informal donor even if they could afford to go through a clinic that does happen even if just because they would prefer it to be more a more sort of natural process and they don't want to they would like to meet the donor. They would like to sort of look him in the eye, and it just, it just, it just feels more. Yeah, I think it just feels more natural to them and less, less clinical. And I think a lot of people go down that road just for that reason. And I've certainly, I've certainly donated to people who could have afforded to go to a clinic, but they actually just prefer. Not, you know, there's the, there's the more personal element to it, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely pros and cons, but I do feel that only the cons are coming now about online donation because or overseas um, media especially because you know obviously you uh, you Anthony aren't going to a journalist hey saying can you post a positive article about me I'll pay you uh, 10 grand or you know a, a sum of money to shoot me in a positive ray of light so whereas a clinic is um, you know definitely uh, manipulating the situation and this is what the podcast is about an unbiased view, putting it out there, and there's no money. You weren't paid to come on this this episode of the podcast today. I wasn't paid to do this podcast. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's just real people talking about real issues and, and the reality of, of what we do and what we're in and and the, and the and the dealings that we have to come across from running a group ourselves as well and, and how we conduct it and how we can move forward to improve, you know, the integrity of the, of the whole system in general. Uh, I think we've um, discussed a lot today, Anthony. I really appreciate your time coming on the show. There'll be uh, information about those, um, the media articles that Anthony's done. Uh, any other contact information that Anthony would like to hand over as well will be in the episode guide, um, episode list information guide for this uh, episode, and you'll be able to uh, find out find out more there and about Anthony's group. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on today, Anthony. No worries. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. What will you do without freedom? And tell our enemies that they may take our lives. But they'll never take freedom. Well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who makes up next to you. When I go out, yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who goes along with you.